0: And Genova was like, what if we made it like a wallet where you can only hold 20 bucks? Like if you had a wallet that only held 20 bucks and you found money on the ground, you would give it to someone else because you wouldn't want it to get wasted and you get points for being nice.
1: Hi, everybody, this is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game developer Robin Hunicke, best known for her work on My Sims, Boomblocks, and Journey, and also as the co founder of Phenomena. This episode was recorded December 1st, 2021, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. <laughs>
0: And who has recorded many podcasts? On it. <laughs> That's true. You know, yeah, I'm it's true. I'm always worrying about. I like mute myself when I'm yeah. on when I'm on the microphone. Yeah, I'm sure we've done. If I'm not talking because I'm so afraid of breathing heavily into the microphone or s- over, I talk over people like as a way of yep. communicating that yeah. I'm listening, and it's, it's it's not a good habit. I have I have know. that
1: problem too. Or uh-huh. like, I don't. I don't. Turn taking in Zoom is horrible. Or
0: yeah, we just have it now. We just have a thing where if there's six or more people in the meeting, you have to raise your hand. And I never do it, and I always feel like an asshole. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, my brain doesn't remember mm. that.
1: Anyway. All right. So, in the last episode, yeah, yeah, we were <laughs> we were <laughs> just about to jump in the journey, uh, but you wanted to jump back to some stuff at EA first. Yeah, I just I I was
0: thinking about our conversation last night as I was falling asleep, and I realized that like. One thing that's probably interesting or relevant for anyone who gives a shit about me (laughs) to know is that I did take this lateral and then downward move when I left EA uh, in Redwood Shores and ended up at EALA working for the castle. And the reason I did it was because internally at Electronic Arts, there were two paths to leadership. One was to go through they call the development director role so you'd be a producer and then you would be really good with doing hopefully with doing like basically managing spreadsheets and budgets and schedules so that you could always know the numbers behind the team that you were working with and uh, my bestest dd that i ever had at electronic arts was jason chase who is just phenomenal as a person amazing and he can't come out of art actually and then gone up the track and he was my development director on the boom blocks first the first boom blocks game um and i really really enjoyed working with him and uh the other path was to go up through production to become an executive producer Mm -hmm. and There was a lot of feeling in the company at the time that if you didn't really understand either the number crunching side of making a game or the like people crunching side of making a game, which is kind of how it worked back then. Um, that you really couldn't be like in charge of something like a franchise yeah. or a new game. And yeah, so, I, uh,
1: I remember that yeah, actually where I was like, yeah. oh, where's the lead designers, there, creative directors, design directors? Like, isn't that what the whole game industry is about? Right, yeah. 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 And so
0: <laughs> I was like, I was struggling as a leader because I didn't have the kind of support that I needed. And I think there was some pretty bad institutional sexism that I was experiencing as well. You know, I look back on it now and I'm like, wow, that was like seriously gender harassment. But like in addition to that, the pathway just dead-ended it like lead designer. And I had hit it in too short of a time, honestly. But um, like at best, I mean, it would have taken me four or five years to get where I was. And the experience was pretty difficult because you were always getting overruled by the numbers people or... The executive producer, like, well, what was the executive producer role? And I remember actually in my mentoring conversations around that time asking people like, why aren't the designers allowed to be in charge, it was like because they don't understand how people work. And that ended up kind of being true for me, like as a, as a sort of Aspie, like,
2: uh-huh.
0: you know, argumentative computer scientist, I kind of went into the position of being like, well, I'll just be right about everything and then it'll all work. Right. So it, you know, in addition to sort of the comments that we had last session about my leadership failings or really my training failings is the way to say that with kindness, um, which everyone should always criticize themselves with kindness. Um, because most failures are systemic and not personal, um, or situational, which is also not personal because the world is random. Um, I, I think that I realized that I wanted to be in leadership because of my experiences with the people core on the Sims and my early stuff in college where I was like, wow, stuff sucks and only the people in charge get to change it. So if you're the person in charge, you can make a
1: difference. And so-
0: I did learn on the Boombox project.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It seems like I can see the, from the position you came from Yeah. why you felt a need to try to swim up to leadership as fast as possible. Yeah, because, because I had
0: just been like really squashed, Yeah. you know, in many ways. And I had these really unpleasant experiences where it was like I was saying what I knew was good for the game, but I couldn't get it. It couldn't get through leadership back down to the people yeah. that it needed to. And then we'd have private conversations. They'd be convinced. And then I'd get in trouble. And it was like... I was always managing through others, was the way they said it at EA, uh, which just really just means having a lot of lunches and like praying yeah. at night that you made a difference. So when I went to Boomblocks and started working with Lou, he was an excellent mentor in the very specific way, and that he was like, get to know the people on your projects and learn how to make good things happen with the limited resources that they have. And so I really learned how to manage um, individual project tasks. To success but also to like for example help an engineer create um, time in their schedule by giving them an extra machine that they worked on while they were waiting for their builds to to bake where they optimized the low-end systems so that we would always have a few extra spots in memory for sound so that Brad would always have extra space to put music because he was always coming up with cool ways to put music and sound in the game and was a genius. And you know, the sound designers never got a budget. It was like, whatever's left, you know, um, they have to animate and they have to do all this special effects and stuff. So, so that was one thing that I learned to do. And then the other thing I learned to do was to make everybody's tasks hyper visible. And I realized that the art of like creating a sticky board with like daily check-ins it wasn't just running a scrum. It was really about like building momentum on specific features and having a team-wide conversation about those features and giving people permission in the meeting to say they were overloaded or they had overcommitted and that they were going to underdeliver. Like the real problem that I realized was happening on my own team when I was still at Revit Shores and then on the teams inside of VALA was that people felt they had to perform authority all the time and they were not vulnerable about when they were stuck. Mm-hmm. And this was like a really deep learning. Like, I didn't learn that in grad school. Yeah. I just quit. You mm-hmm. know? And I certainly didn't learn it in my first couple jobs at EA because I was like, I'm just gonna win by being right all the time, which is not a vulnerable position to come from. Yeah. So I did not know how to negotiate my commitments or to be vulnerable about my growth areas and i learned how to facilitate that conversation with the people that i was managing without being the creative in charge of the project like steven spielberg was in charge of the project nominally but also like authority wise no one on the team had the right to say it has to be a or or it has to be like it needs to be blue not red or it needs to be you know a duck not a chicken or whatever you know add more squish and squash action you know which is a Spunko comic book joke, but like that secondary factor helped me really understand that in an environment where people are competing for authority because performing authority is how you get power, then a lot of time gets wasted. Right. And a lot of bad design decisions get made. Like, someone says there has to be a helicopter, and then suddenly a helicopter appears. It took someone, you know, so many hours to build and animate it. And then the designers are like, What? Like, how do I, you want me to change this whole scene so that they get helicoptered in? Like, it's gonna have to rewrite all the dialogue. And what's going on? And like, well, we decided we want a helicopter because we wanted a big entrance for this E3 demo or whatever, you know? And we know. Yeah. So, you have to do it. And I was like, this is toxic. <laughs> like, this performance of authority is a toxic thing. And it, it's, I think now it's kind of associated with the concept of like toxic masculinity and leadership and like white male power and like right. non diversity. But it's, I think it's just in and of itself, the pressure to perform authority, even in a highly diverse team or environment, is toxic. Like, the lack of having a learning mindset and being able to iterate towards what's best for the game or um, best for the team or best for the students or whatever, what's best for the government, what's best for the citizens, you know, what's best for the hospital, you know, those are the kinds of things you need to be doing in leadership. And most people get into leadership, they feel like failures and like they're faking it and then they overperform their authority and then they fail. Right. And so having done the first thing, which is overperform my authority and fail, because I was in an environment where everyone around me was modeling this behavior and I had come from an academic environment where everyone was modeling this behavior in a country where everyone on television models this behavior you know, in a world where we model this behavior I was like, oh, there's like a very important part of like this little seed of my Buddhism which is that if you accept the fact that the world is random and that you are all everyone on the planet is trying to do the same thing then that applies to your job, just like it applies to your personal life and your individual personal struggles with just the randomness of the system that you were born into, like a bad family system, or you know, being a different skin color than other people, and they're so, therefore somehow randomly ostracized. Um, so it was really deep learning, and I didn't—I don't think I ever really appreciated it until we talked yesterday. Because I was like, yeah, what did I learn? Why didn't I just run away with Kyle and everybody else? Why didn't I just run away and work for John on Braid? Or like run away, you know, and go back to Spore. Like that would have been another thing I could have done. I just bailed and gone on to Spore. Like,
2: you know, I knew a lot of
0: people there. Yeah, why did I switch towns and work on this game. Partly it was because I was in a relationship at the time where the, the person I was with was in the studio working on the game. So it was like easy to like, oh, we'll live next to each other as opposed to having to commute from San Francisco to LA. Because personal life always drives my decisions in many ways. But the other reason was like I like really, really needed a break from performing my own authority, and it was so nice to put on a producer suit and go into work every day, even though I was a designer inside. I didn't perform authority as a producer because I was a junior producer and it gave me this really awesome tool which was, well, I don't really know what we should do. Right. And I came onto the project about three months in so why don't we have a conversation about it? Right. And then like, are you really going to be able to get that done in a week? Because it seems like it's not getting done. What if we did something slightly different? And then I could design in a group setting without threatening anyone and without having the responsibility. Right. And then I was like, this is why you want an executive producer, as opposed to a designer, because the design culture is toxic. Yeah, it's highly competitive. Sure. And it doesn't actually try to iterate toward what's good for the game inside of EA. Yeah, I. But, you know.
1: Well, this is a this is a this is a general problem. Like early days in projects are super hard, and it's hard for like it's certainly been hard for me to work with designers early because you just you just Guessing. have you just have you know like the what opinions are you know they're just smelly, everyone's got opinions, yeah. and we all gotta deal with them, and like, and beyond that, games can legitimately go in multiple different ways, it's not even like, one of you is right, and one of you is wrong, right? No, it's At just all. multiple
0: possible universes out yeah. there.
1: Yeah, you can aim for different audiences, you can have different, you know, like, so on, and um, so, if you're in that situation, where your team is large enough, it has to have multiple designers, like, that type of conflict is inevitable, like, unless, you know, unless you want to share with us So so, so I think that when you
0: have a culture where the fear is that we won't find what's right because we'll have to consider too many options and I need there to be fewer options so that I'm not overwhelmed. Right. And that's what the designer's perspective is, which is very common it's just common as a person to be like, I mean, if you sit down to a blank piece of paper as an artist and you're like, I want to do a watercolor today cause I have time and I'm looking at this beautiful tree and then you're like, do I really want to draw the whole tree? Do I want to, you know, like even just that, like making the first few marks on the page is like an overwhelming burden and most people don't draw for this reason. So like, I think what you try to do over time, is to create a collectivist approach to the problem of problem solving and a learning mindset where you iterate very quickly on a variety of ideas. Anyone's idea can be okay, but then you have very clear goals about what you're trying to accomplish and you argue about those goals, but you do that in the face of data, not in the face of nothing. Right. So that was what I started to try to do it at boom Blocks. Like I started to try to be like, okay, you think it should be this, you think it should be this, you love this design. Like we only have room for so many levels. Like, let's actually figure out what what's the what's the fundamental feeling that this game is supposed to have. Right. Is it supposed to be multiplayer? Or is it supposed to be a really kick-ass single-player puzzle campaign? Because if it's the one, it can't be the other. What, you know?
1: did, what did data mean in this context?
0: Uh, data meant you built a prototype of the level, you played it, you and you did like as much as you could to make it awesome, and then we all played them together. Right. And we did this regularly, and right. we talked about the game regularly while all sitting around it. There's so a you're, really
1: sh- you're talking about something concrete. Yeah, you're Even talking.
0: If- you're pointing at a thing. And saying, this elephant <laughs> yeah. has a long tail and a short nose, and that's a difficult thing for it, because it needs a long <laughs> nose and a short tail in order to survive. And so we need to do this, Yeah, you know, and then people are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Whereas if you're like sitting around the lunch table talking about like, how are we going to make a Godfather game? And you're like, well, I think we should emphasize the oh, killing, gosh, you gosh. know, I think we should emphasize the chases. I think we should emphasize the drama and have a really cool interactive narrative. I think that the graphics have to be amazing and all the characters have to look exactly like the movie actors, which means we're going to be able to do almost no gameplay. So I think it should all be cutscenes. Like all of those are possibly true, but they were made in the absence of any real data. Yeah. You know, and like you can argue about that shit forever. Yeah. You know, you just can. And like the fucked up thing that I realized while I was working on this stuff was I was trained as a computer scientist to sit around all day and argue with people. (laughs) <laughs> right. That was my best skill. Yeah, yeah. And before that, at the University of Chicago, I mean, like I was reading fucking philosophy. I'm like a Heideggerian, you know, yeah.
1: like, mm, well, what does so, it
0: mean to be in time?
1: So what do you do at the beginning? It's uh, an unanswerable so many, question. You know, I, I mean, I do remember the Godfather game. What What do you do if you're at EA and you get the Godfather's license and you, you know, you start? It's day one and you have no data. Y- you and have you, to, you're, you you're have a year to build. Away from data. You have
0: to build a trusting team environment where the key stakeholders in that room, hopefully it's five or ten people. discipline leads and they want to come up with a shared vision execute and win awards their goal has to be this is going to be like an amazing game or they want to come up with an amazing game that blows other games from a specific genre off the charts or like it it looks so good that it's in a museum you know like whatever that goal is they have to be shared in their quest for that goal and that usually takes a few months you Mm -hmm. know you need the time and the expertise in the room I mean, like how long does it take to start a new franchise inside of Riot? Right. Or Blizzard. Yep. You know? Probably yep. three years. Yep. You know? Yeah, because I mean, you need to put those people on it in a room together and they need to have trusting creative conversations and prototypes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Riot's interesting because it's uh it was a long-range joke, you know, that they were incapable, of it, but they were actually just taking their time to do it, you know, I guess the right way, you know, it apparently worked. They don't seem to be suffering
0: on the money side.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know,
0: the culture side is another question, but like they they certainly know how to make new things happen from within their culture and they don't seem to feel rushed. Yeah. And I think that that's a, not feeling rushed is a very helpful thing. One of the biggest problems with Indies is that we feel incredibly pressured. And I think when I stepped into work on Journey, you know, I was like talking to Chris Butcher about going on to Bungie. Genova came and showed me the game design for Journey and was like, you should be the lead designer on this game. I saw, I saw in myself, like if I go back to being a lead designer, I'm going to automatically lean into these behaviors. I'm going to feel like an imposter. I'm going to worry that I'm not doing it fast enough, especially on Journey, because the budget was $1.5 million. I mean, yeah. 16 months. They'd mm. already agreed to all this before I went there. And hey, <laughs> guess what? Ron Howard voice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it cost twice as much. It took twice as long. Um, uh, that wasn't Ron Howard voice. I'm sorry. But you can, you can imagine it yes. as, as you will. Um, so I knew that if I leaned back into this role as a designer, all of my anxieties about being right... That were coming from you know years and years of you know discrimination slash social systems whatever plus my brain plus whatever like and my training that that I would be very hard pressed not to lean back into them and I remembered what it was like trying to defend my authority all the time and it sucked. Um, Also, run hard voice. I have never fully eclipsed this problem. I don't think that any human really can. Uh, in the society that we live in unless they're raised very, very specifically to be open-minded and to be a contemplative person, like essentially trained to be a Buddha from a very early age. And we don't do that in, in most places on the planet. So yeah. I think it's, a, it's, you know, with kindness, I could say like it's a constant journey for me. But, um, but when I went onto that team, I definitely, I definitely was carrying in my suitcase or my, my, my toolbox, the way I talk about it with my students, is that you know you have a design toolbox at the beginning you're just putting experiences in there and they're almost all failures and then those failures accrete and crenellate and then they fall down into the second section of the toolbox through these holes which is where your intuitions are and then those intuitions accrete and crenellate and then those become your design tools yeah and so i had an intuition without and like a few production tools um, that came out of that intuition, which was I need to create a safe space for people to communicate about design challenges. I need to be an investigator, not a decider, mm-hmm. and let the team decide through collective winnowing uh, and um, really clear understanding of the goal is necessary. Right. If you don't have that understanding, you're basically rowing
1: the boat and people are just rowing in different directions and you go sure. around in circles. Well, you said that, um, you said an interesting thing I guess probably about 15 minutes ago. Yeah, sorry. I to repeat. No, 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 because it just stuck in my mind because it's kind of interesting the way it's phrased. I know what you meant. You said that, you know, at EA, they said, they told you that designers designers can't lead because they don't understand people. Yeah. Designers understanding people is a pretty good shorthand for what being a designer means. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like that's, <laughs> that's a pretty good definition. And obviously it means like what you're talking about is they don't know how to... Lead a team. Yeah. Necessarily. And and, and um, my
0: I had producers that told me like the way that I lead, literally I had a producer that were that I worked under that said to me, like, my strategy is I get to know people just enough to always remember something personal about them anytime I need to ask them for something. Okay. That's how I lead. Okay. And I'm incredibly successful. <laughs> and I remember thinking, Ugh. <laughs> that's that sounds really awful. Yeah, that means you're like totally fake and manipulative. And was it
1: meant as a compliment? Like, where was it coming from? It,
0: it was just. It was just like you don't do what I do, and this is how you manage people. And I was like, I don't, I don't think I want to be you. I don't want to manage that way. Yeah, but that was what it meant in in that context, and I think for many people at EA, that's
1: what it meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it. it there's something that, something else you could kind of talk about, that way, which is that. Um, so a design, you know, a good designer understands people in the context of like what would make them want to play the game, yeah. You know, what where fun comes from, so on and so forth. And um, I forgot where I'm going with this, but um,
0: <sighs> is the question like, can you can you be a good designer and not be a good leader?
1: Right, like how like yeah, I went kind of interested in talking about like the the overlap there. Yeah. Right. Like it like like how far like how far can that split? Where it's like okay, there's like literally no overlap, and like for what type of designers is, is that actually like the the two actually fit together really well, and like what tools do you have to actually maybe train people to do those two things together? Yeah. So they don't develop into a becoming a designer who knows who knows what they want.
0: Right, but can't but like, speak it. You
1: can't communicate it. Can't get people on board with it. Yeah. Can't like explain why this is this is the right path.
0: It's such a horrible place to be in, and has someone who has been in it, um, and is often in it because of the way my brain works. Is that I see pictures, then I have to turn the pictures into words, and then I have to make the words like not be so fast and jumbled that someone else can understand them. Um, I think you know the answer is, is that there are basic tools for communicating about commitments, mm-hmm. revising commitments, and being filled with gratitude that you get to do what you do every day. I think when your ego is injured. You know, most of the time it's from the perception that you should have won or done something better right. to get your way. And like a fundamental attitude towards the concept of creative abrasion mm-hmm. that is like it's natural part of the process, just like, you know, the Grand Canyon needed a river. Yep. you know, you're gonna need this creative abrasion to winnow down the random block of thing that you think is the game into a beautiful sculpture that people can appreciate you know like you're going to need to chip away at it one little bit at a time and I think the tool is the leadership team sets the tone that you are in an accepting caring environment that wants you to succeed at the goals that you've all collectively set let's say it's make the best RTS ever (laughs) and like you're going to blow away everybody else like or this is the best version of XCOM that's ever been made like this one right here Like that's our goal. Like all of your decisions are made based on that razor was the word that they use in EA often or pillar. Um, But that that pillar doesn't come at the cost of the safety of the team. Right. And when you look at like Google did a lot of work on this, including project Aristotle, which was all about like, what is the most important thing in all of our teams to success? It was the safety to be able to say, I don't get it. Or, I think it should change or I fucked up or I'm really down this week and I'm not going to be at peak performance. Like the ability to bring your full self to work. Um, I fundamentally believe that building a deliberately developmental organization, which is what I tried to do with my company later in life, is the best way to solve for this problem because it doesn't create a leader Mm -hmm. that solves all the problems for everybody and it doesn't create a culture that no one can fit in Mm -hmm. it creates a space in which failure is a gift communicating is important and respect is paramount to those communications. And if you do this, I think with any organization, it could, you could be making cars or Macron or like, you know, whatever hot dogs, it doesn't matter. Um, the team will feel bought in to the experience of being in the team, mm-hmm. and the outcomes will be better for it. They might not be the exact outcomes you predicted as a leader, you know, or an organizer at the beginning of the process. But if you build that kind of environment, then then everybody's part of the culture, including you. And I think the other thing that it does is it takes the pressure off. Like one of the most common problems that we discuss as leaders um, of independent game companies or startups is the pressure mm-hmm. that one feels to perform authority in the face of relatively unpredictable odds and massive amounts of creative uncertainty yeah and spending down your runway which is what you're doing like you're always spending down your runway like unless you're jamie chang you're always spending (laughs) down your runway (laughs) yeah and that and that's so i think that building a ddo is the is the way to do it and it doesn't it doesn't mean that the, the designer isn't a leader it means the designer is part of a community that wants them to succeed
1: yeah i, I i'm sure i haven't thought this through this as thoroughly as you have but like there's probably like three things i can think of that i i do that try to help out with with this problem like one is that um it whenever there's some sort of failure you you talk immediately about what you know what you what we can do now because we have that because fail. we have
0: that information Yeah. 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 now yeah.
1: that we do this we can implement this 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 and move on that quickly make that Like a priority so people don't dwell on that yeah second thing is that anytime and this is kind of maybe very specific to me because i did a lot of the direct gameplay code or whatever but like anytime i get i get an idea from someone Mm -hmm. that resonates with me i do it that afternoon like immediately Mm -hmm. right um and the last thing is is when there are contentious issues like i you know about like not not even arguments just like you you know, should workers do this or should they do that? Right. You know, I try to emphasize as much as possible. Like if, if you have this thing that that you think, and I'm not right. Do it right now. I say like, I don't have enough information to do this right now. Like it's not, I'm not telling you, no, I'm telling you, I, I am, I am going through this process trying to figure this out as well. You know, so I am uncertain. This is something I think I'm going to get to, but it's it's not something I'm going to answer right now, period.
0: Yeah, like I, I that. think That's that being I able know. to say you don't know is so important. Yeah. And how many of us exist in organizations or family systems where saying you don't know is modeled for you? It's so rare. Right. You know, and a person who genuinely says, I don't know without shame is like, They're one step away from true enlightenment, in my opinion. I've met very few of them in my life.
1: Yeah, if you have leaders who do that, it disarms people. It just makes them comfortable. Yeah. You know? Um, Yeah.
0: It's like if you think about the people that you feel safe with, they're not judging you. They're not making you feel like you should have done better. And they're certainly not telling you the story that you tell yourself, which is, I'm a fraud. I don't understand what I'm doing. It'll never succeed. We'll run out of money. I'll be homeless, living on the street, no one will love me. You know, like those stories get so huge so fast. It's like a big steamroller catamari thing that just comes at you. And like you're doing that to yourself. I literally just said to one of my students today, they were like, I have to talk to you about something that happened that made me feel like a fraud. And I was like, okay, first of all, did I do this thing? Because if I did that, I'm so sorry. No, 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 it wasn't you, it was this thing in the interview. Well, okay, the, the correct way to phrase it then is I want to tell you about an experience I had. After which I told myself a story that I'm a fraud. Right. Yep. Yeah. Then you have the agency to fix it.
2: Yeah.
0: They didn't make you feel this way. You have the agency to respond to the feedback or the question or the experience, the random rain <laughs> yeah. that ruined your wedding and say, I told myself a story that I should have planned this for a not rainy day. Well, guess what? Yeah. You know, weather is dynamic, yeah. you know, and you can have that conversation with yourself. You can still cry in your cake which is like inside in a horrible rec center because your beautiful outdoor environment is gone. But you don't blame yourself for the failure. You, you understand that you're part of the system. And I think telling, I mean, like read any book by Renee Brown, you know, like, it's like, this is like empathy versus sympathy, like all of this stuff. So the other thing I should say is that like around this time when I was at EA And I was getting ready to go off into my independent games journey. Mm. I had had many years of experience with experimental games through EGW and the affiliated communications I had with indie gamers and game designers. Um, But I was also obsessively reading. um, I continued to obsessively read cognitive science, popular psychology and wellness literature, as well as the Buddhism that I was ingesting. And so I was always looking for stories about... Why organizations fail? I was I was reading the Economist and the HBR, um, both of which have their problems, but occasionally real gems. And like I was always, it was like the cutout bins when I was in grad school. And now it was like, okay, I'm sifting through leadership literature and business school literature to try to understand how a company can be so financially successful and for so many people feel like a soul sucking place to work.
2: Yeah.
0: you know. Um, and just the people like me who are diverse will just bounce off of it, yeah. you know, like because that's exactly what happened, you know, yeah. like I literally bounced off of EA in four four and a half years. I didn't even invest. Like I had some stock grants as a bonus for Bison's and that was it. Right. Still have them. Yeah. They're about, eh, okay, I guess. <laughs> it's not a huge amount of money. Yeah. Someday I'll, I don't know. I'll Use them to buy myself a nice pair of earrings, <laughs> <laughs> uh, some ridiculous ass sneakers. Yeah, those those Louis Vuitton customs that the shoe surgeon is making
1: that are seven thousand yeah. dollars. but anyway. right, let's get back. So let's get back on the timeline yeah. because we're about to jump. Yeah. So jump into journey. So we're going
0: to levier. So that that was my my learning from last night. All right. So,
1: so you were you were making decisions about where you wanted to go, yeah. and Gen- Genova came to you with a pitch for for
0: journey. journey. Yeah, he he had a deck, and it was cute. It was like. He did a lot of cool concept art. I always thought concept art was cool. Um, and it was like people in these black robes moving through this desert. He's like, it's gonna be an MMO and everyone's gonna be moving to the same destination. they are gonna be all these things again in the way. And I was like, like what? He's like, well, for example, this thing is this huge dragon. Like you have to distract it so the other person can leave, but then maybe you get eaten. And I was like, okay. And then he was like, here's another one. It's a cave and a windstorm is coming and it only has room for two people. And so when a third person comes up, one of you has to decide to sacrifice yourself so the other person can move forward. And I was like, okay, these are all like really hard choices and they're also really hard losses. Like, why, why would I play this game? Mm -hmm. Like, it sounds really painful. Well, it's like life, you know, you got to make these hard decisions. And I was like, well, okay, I get it. And I was like, ah, you know, I love the idea of like a kind of cool, long range plan to get to the top of a mountain. Like, you know, that was kind of the... The early concept art that Matt w- had done was at the end of the deck and there was this one really beautiful shot that was like a Sergio Leone kind of like movie poster. It was like red sands and then like this black wall of a mountain with just like a tiny crack in it. Yeah. Like It's just a big... Vagina. (laughs) We called it a Yanni. It was like, it was just like, go to the mother, like go to the light, like go back to where you came from, get reborn. And like on the other side, you'll get out there and there'll be something amazing. It was really symbolic drawing. And it was like, the person was like this little tiny, like almost like a ninja with like, like this robes waving in the wind. It was just so cool. And I was like, that looks cool. Like, I want to make that, like, I don't see anybody else in this picture. Just this one dude. Like, I like this. And so I was like, I'll talk to your team. And he was like, okay. And I was still working at EA and I was interviewing around. So it was one of those things where, like, late in the afternoon, you leave early and you go over and you're like talking to everybody. They were working in a closet in Sony Santa Monica. (laughs) It's since turned into a conference room. Uh, But there were like four people shoved in there and then um, a few people around the outside. And uh, I just went and had conversations with everybody about, like, what are you doing? what's your responsibility on the project and like, how do you feel about it and by the end of the meeting I was the day of visiting, I was like, well, I don't really think you need a lead designer because you already have people who feel like this Mm. and you kind of are right. I'm the creative director. Like, okay, well let me be your producer. Let me create an environment for you to succeed. Mm. And that was kind of like, I realized that I could try out being an EP on a small team with a small budget and, you know, worst case scenario, would fail and nobody would notice. Right. Just be like, well, Rob took a small job and then I could just go off and out and disappear, fall off a cliff. Right. You know, end up homeless on the street. Do you have else.
1: any sense of like if you're the lead designer and it failed, then people would be like... Oh, totally. Oh, like it's, it's fit, Robin's it fit, fault. You know, it'd be like, yeah, This is yeah. Rob and... To pin, on,
0: pin it on her. Yeah, no, like no one paid attention to what an EP did. They only paid attention to designers. And I was like, I don't want the toxicity of that role. I don't to have to fight with Genova all the time about what's going to happen inside mm-hmm. the game. I want to be a facilitator because I'm good at it. And now that I am good at it, I also realize that there's a lot of soft power that comes with being able to facilitate. Um, And the best ideas win. I don't have to feel responsible for the the ideas, but I can help the ones that really clearly want to be done get done on time. And like those, I trust the process that I am working on. I trust that if I follow the process that I've been working on over the last couple of years, that I can improve my output and it's a personal thing for me and i know that the if i if i take the goblet and i drink the wine you know i will be poisoned like i cannot have the power back i need to stay in the shadows right. you know and then like over time it, it became true that i could do my job and also represent the team at events or i could you know call on the stakeholders at sony and represent our progress to them and get us more money and like i learned that i could use all of the energy that i had been spending trying to be right being of service to a, ver- a wide variety of people including potential customers and current customers which would be you know, the leadership at, at, at sony
1: right. santa monica did they did they hire a lead designer
0: no we just we just kept the person that was doing the design which was nick
1: okay. so he
0: was already doing it
1: okay. and
0: uh hiring me in would have effectively kind of cut him off.
1: Sure, yeah, right, that's and a problem too. Been there
0: for 3 years already, so why bother? Yeah. What
1: um, uh what how did it how did it transition then from this game of like super difficult choices to like a game where Well, know, that it, it that is a long matter.
0: story. And like actually one one of the things that's true about Journey is that it did not end up anywhere near where it started, and also every year we rewrote we re, basically re, rewrote it. Mm-hmm. We we made a we made a version of it. Uh, we made a two D version of it, which we called Dragon. This Dragon prototype, which was top down two D, four players simultaneous. It was basically a dungeon wow. crawler, okay. and you had to communicate uh-huh. uh through one sound, which was you would press the space bar and you would go, hey. Okay.
1: <laughs> that was it. So that was always part of the project. This idea that people would work together, but you were drastically limiting in, how in, they were going to be able to communicate. in the
0: communication
1: because and that was it, yeah and what was the intention there like so, why so was Genova that? Was, why was his that important?
0: his pitch was was really compelling here it was like we spend all this time playing online games we meaning Genova because he was like a super dedicated dota player at the time yeah and a very aggressive oh. and competitive <laughs> one at that
1: okay we the spent, opposite of journey yeah the
0: literally mm-hmm. the opposite of journey which is also hilarious um he was a very competitive player and just a competitive person in general and he was like, I spend all my time um, playing these online games and we're putting all this technology into them and all I ever look at is the back of someone else's butt.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, Or I'm like always trying to kill them yeah. and I don't know them and I don't feel any connection to them. They might as well be
1: robots. Not even, not even that. Like Dota, the design is you know i at some point I actually want to get to the bottom of this yeah <laughs> like, whether this is intentional or not and you know the the, the design creates toxic it, toxicity yeah, because hard, hard loss conditions if yeah well and if if you're the way the game is set up if you're a bad player you're better off not doing anything yes than going out and failing yeah. because as you fail you make the other team stronger yeah like that's sort of like vaguely true for a lot of games but in, in dota it's like literally true right You're literally yeah it's like fo-
0: yeah it's like football where you lose a limb every time you don't make it down like I, I I do I agree with you and I think when when you look at like hard loss conditions in games and especially when you look at sports, we often do a lot to increase randomness like RNG goes up essentially as a game gets developed over time or to introduce um, lag or like breaks like in, in basketball to increase the pacing without increasing the sort of vilification of individuals on the team like without right. with, we basically try to ameliorate scapegoating mm-hmm. and increase opportunities to shine and that helps create stars right and like i think that's what successful games do when they're competitive yeah. they give you a chance to to shine and like you know left for dead you know you can shine individually in any game and you, you can be in any role um, or you can play it like you're playing Dota and yeah. shoot everybody in the head and win by yourself. Yeah. You know, like well, even
1: so, even Left 4 Dead is interesting. Even if you die, yeah. playing Left 4 Dead, you can be like, well, the zombies are attacking me and they weren't and, attacking you. And they you. won't attack you, yeah. You know, it, it's like it's, it's a like soft you know, loss. we're all everything we're doing is somehow contributing to success. That to is the not success. that is not true for Dota. That's true. You know, and it's interesting. Like a lot of people work on those games. They spend a lot of time talking about their their fancy systems for reducing toxicity. And it's like, dude it's in the, the problem design. is in the game design but anyway so, we should document this right go well,
0: ahead <laughs> so actually you know to to, to bring it back to something we discussed last time like it the problem is in the dynamics like the rules themselves create dynamics between players where it is easier to hate someone for failing you than it is to support them for having done something beneficial right and that is a problem it's a fundamental flaw in the dynamics if you don't want to be in a toxic community yeah lots of people apparently yeah, yeah, sure. love it yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so you know, they're making this like they didn't make money and it has been going a million times. So yeah. so it's interesting because the feeling of rage quitting a game was something that Genova was very familiar with. And at that time they were online games and he didn't like what he saw in himself. Yeah. Sure. But more importantly, he's a very philosophical person and I think he saw that this was a problem in society. Yeah. And you know, I don't speak for Genova because he's an individual, but I think his path coming to the United States from China, growing up after the Tiananmen Square uh, atrocity, you know, like being in the United States and having to kind of like adapt and learn and grow at a time when so much was happening in the games industry and also in China. Like, I think these were huge factors in the way that he was thinking at the time. Um, sociological, dynamical sort of systems-based influences that we, that we did talk about Um, and then I think went of their way into the game, um, in the same way that my fundamental understanding that connection happens through vulnerability and creativity is the result of being able to collaborate, um, work their ways into the game. And so he was like, what if we made an online game that wasn't toxic? Yeah. The best way to do it is to make it, you know, an experience where everyone has the same goal. That was his idea. And then we did this four player test. Where everyone playing had the same goal, and there were only four people, and we were like, okay, the the thing is, is like in Dota, you end up screaming at each other, so let's make it so that you can only call someone, yeah, and that's it. Mm-hmm. There's like two kinds of calls, hey, hey, you know, that's it, that's it. The one kind of call, you can spam the button if you want, hey, hey, or mm-hmm. hey, hey, and it like that was it. Um, and there was like wind sound. so that it just felt atmospheric. But it basically was like tanks. You we were driving tanks around. Yeah. And then the idea was that like if you hit a circle, which was a piece of cloth, you got a longer train that you could surf on. And it was like you could make a longer trail and you could go farther. And like momentum was a- accomplished by getting these little pieces of scraps. And every time you picked up a scrap, there was a sound of fabric tearing. Mm. And we brought four people into the studio to the closet in the Santa Monica studio. We put them in different rooms or closets. Uh, We let them in through different entrances at slightly different times. So no one knew that it was a multiplayer game.
2: And then we put them
0: in front of the computer Uh and we tested it. And I actually had not quit EA by then. So I supervised the play test because I was trying to finish something and I wanted to not let my peers down. So I supervised the play test and like about a week later I, I joined the team officially. But, um, we sat down and watched everyone play on a networked monitor which had the game feed and the four people played and they could only talk to each other and then we individually interviewed each of them and then we brought them into a room together and had them Mm -hmm. talk to each other and that was when i knew the game was awesome yeah but there were two problems with it one they they were vilifying each other's performance strategies there was one person tracy Fullerton who was playing and wanted to play solo and just explore the dungeon. Mm-hmm. And the other three players were, were men and were um, incredibly directive, <laughs> and wanted to like achieve the outcome, which was to escape the dungeon. And they kept going over, being like,
1: "Hey, hey, 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 Wait, hold on, hold a second, man. Look, do they do they think it was a multiplayer game at that point?
0: No, they just thought that this one color was like the bad one.
1: The like the AI behind it was.
0: Yeah, they, they all thought it was AIs, yeah. and so Tracy was wandering around as like let's say she was the yellow player, like looking at stuff, yeah, exploring every room, yeah. and then these other Red, yellow, and green dots yeah. came over and were like, hey hey, 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 hey. And she was like, I had a very stressful time playing this game because uh, the AIs kept bugging me to make progress and I didn't like it. Yeah. And I want to play. <laughs> I want to play a game. Just was like this is a super
1: <laughs> weird game. <laughs> yeah, she
0: did not like it. Yeah. Uh, she was like, I want to play a game to explore. And we were like, cool. And then like the other people were like, well, you know, there were a few. There were a few bots that made sense, but this one didn't, and I didn't understand it. The feedback was kind of like that. And then we put them all together in a room, and we were like, okay, this is the yellow player. This is the red player. This is the blue player. This is the green player. And they were like, what? Yeah. And then they were like, oh my god, why were you doing that? And then they, the the three that had mobbed the one felt pretty bad yeah sure you know they didn't realize that she was a person yeah uh let alone that she was trying to just play her game and we were like fuck like four against four against an enemy is good but three against one is like literally the worst feeling in the world and two against two is a co-op competitive game and we're not trying to make that and it was like just a total you know it was like right across the chin you're like oh man So it was depressing Uh because it was great. They were so excited about the ability to play an anonymous multiplayer game. They thought this was an amazing idea. But the idea of it being a lot of people, they were like, it's just going to be a nightmare. And Tracy especially was like, I want to be able to play by myself. And I want to be able to opt in to doing stuff with other people. I do not want to be forced to play with a bunch of assholes online. I will not play it. You know, right. She probably didn't say asshole. That's probably me editing that. In. So we went back to the drawing board. And then it was like, well, what if there were only two? Right. And it's like, well, that's not what we pitched. But uh-huh. like, well, you know, let's try it with just two. No, let's try four. So we went back and forth, two, four, two, four. Yeah. and We developed four players, and we built a whole 3D version of the game inside the PlayStation. Once the playtest was done, and then we realized that there were all these other constraints that came with 3D, like, and I gave a whole talk about it at Indiecade, as sure. one of my favorite design talks. How are you going to see everybody? You know? Yeah, it's like suddenly, like the idea. So the the really genius thing in the Dragon prototype was the camera was close to you when you were playing alone and every person that you added, it zoomed out. Yeah, sure. So you could see more information. Mm -hmm. And so you could collectively work together to solve the gate problem, get the key, distract the dragon, whatever it was in the, in that room by the camera pulling out. And then when you moved away, you were alone again. And so it really felt bad to be alone. Mm -hmm. It felt claustrophobic and scary because a dragon could come out of anywhere and, and wipe you out. Yeah. Um,
2: Hmm. Okay. So it nice was point.
0: like, you know, exploring by yourself felt worse than being with other people. Yeah. But then there was this added tension of the other people being, hey, 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 yeah. do this and do that and trying to communicate by space. Like they tried to create Morse code and like they, they were trying to do all this stuff with the with the space bar that didn't make any sense and like run back and forth and from each other draw in the sand. But, like we saw all these dynamics. And so we we're like, okay, like none of those dynamics work now. Yeah. They're all gone because yeah. the experiences that you're walking through this long place you go over a hill. If a person's behind you and you look back, you don't see them. Yeah, they might as well be not even in your world anymore. And the design for the game was like massive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we built our first level. It was so huge. It took so long to across. <laughs> and Martin, the whole time, was working on this concept that we had of dynamic sand. So we wanted the world to have this really dynamic texture. And this was like the graphical goal of the game. There was like the sort of three things we wanted to achieve. It was like we really wanted to be anonymous online multiplayer, whatever that ended up being. Yep. We really wanted the movement to be juicy and we really wanted the environment to just be like gorgeous, like okay. take flour and make it like 10X gorgeous. Right. And so Martin had actually started to talk with the internal Sony development team and um, John did too about um, about some of the stuff they were going to be doing in God of War and and uh, some stuff that Media Molecule was working on and some stuff that Naughty Dog was working on around like MLAA and like, you know, screen space rendering and like color profiles and stuff like this. And so we were, we were like, okay, we're gonna do something really cool on the PlayStation. Like we're at the play, it's gonna be for PlayStation, right? we're gonna do some really cool stuff. And also it's going to have these cores and distributed. So Martin will work on the sand algorithm, like just making the sand be distributed across the cores. And so it could run in real time the way that the the pebble swarm and the grass did in flower, which he worked on as well. So he was working on the sand and there was the point where we had four players, a red one, a green one, a blue one, and a, and a yellow one and you would walk across the sand and every time you made a footstep it would poop out a little brick like a little cube Uh and it was like you know cube pooping and we would just run around in there and poop cubes around and like make shapes and draw dicks and like you know just like all the things you do with that kind of system and I remember him saying to me, like, "This is going to be such a fucking failure. <laughs> like, it's such a bad idea. Why are we doing this? It's so boring. Like, we had play tests. Where we're trying to walk through space, and everyone's running around. And I, it was just like, this is not good. Um, the level was too long, and there was no terrain,
1: yeah. and it was just horrible. So, um, so, at some, so at some point, you you guys committed to like two to two, uh, and like it's it's." Um, I think it's really important to like reevaluate what you inherited from earlier parts of a project. Yeah, you know, like because who knows why you went to you know you came from Dota maybe, and he's like, well, a like, game is like four or five I players. I just think and, we, like, maybe we
0: just were like limited in the networking. You'd have to ask John, who made the pro- yeah. or Nick
1: who made the prototype. I don't know why yeah. it was just four, but but like you know, going to two also solves a lot of problems. And it's not exactly like you guys were a team that was overflowing your resources. No, there there were seven
0: of us at the time. Yeah. So Six, actually. (laughs) So, like, including me, and I wasn't programming. So, like, it was like, okay, like, and I, you know, you have to think about too. Like, I show up, and I'm like, okay, well, let's have a conversation about, like, the multiplayer. And I'd schedule a three-hour meeting block, and we'd sit down in this conference room that wasn't the conference room that we were all crammed in, and we'd start talking. And then, like, Jenova would be like, I don't know why we're talking about this. Why don't we just, I mean, like, what what is the value of this meeting? And, like, the first few months it was like, it became very clear to me that there were some like deeply seated trust issues on the team. Mm -hmm. And my process was like just driving everybody crazy. It was like, we don't want to waste time. We only have so much time Time, and like we're running out of time. And it was like, we did an offsite and like, it was almost disastrous. Like, Just everybody was arguing and I was trying so hard to just be like, no, 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 no. We need to, like, we need to get scope back. We need to stop thinking about the deadline. We need to think about what our goals are. Like, if you don't have
1: goals, they'll never get there.
0: You'll just row in a circle forever. And I remember just feeling like the same way I felt as a designer being like, wait, this is how it's supposed to happen. But slowly, um, with a lot of help from Kelly and Martin, uh, who also believed in that process, we were able to kind of overcome those issues. And there was a few people that had to leave the team and like we had a few difficult relationships that we had to manage throughout the process. But the most important thing to take away because all, all games have creative abrasion is that we were able to fundamentally see that those three goals should drive all the prototyping and we would write those three goals down. And then I'd be like, what is the ultimate aesthetic outcome of this game? Like we have these three mechanics, we, 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 what is the dynamic and the aesthetic outcome that we want? And we wrote something like um, each journey is different, but all the destinations are the same. That okay. was like the, the watch phrase for the right. game. And then it was like on wonder towards the unknown was the feeling.
2: Okay.
0: And then like we had these three pillars. And so then we started working on juicy movement and a, like a beautiful dynamic environment and the, and this sort of seamless multiplayer which would now just be two people. So the second system that got added during that time to the schedule that we knew we had to fix was um, being able to connect with people randomly through a lobby without having to go into a lobby. We wanted people to experience the game like they were just walking on a hike and you go over a hill and you see someone walking towards you and the, the analogy that Genova used, which I have always loved, is that when you're in New York City and you get on the train, you do not look at anyone and you do not pay attention to what people are doing. You sit down, you open your book and you try to make yourself invisible because the the, the way it is is everyone's crammed in there and it's rude yeah. to take up space. When you're on a hike and you're walking in nature for hours and then you see another person, they're, yeah. like, a, they're like a masterpiece. Yeah. And like, I have experienced this. Like I have hiked in Bhutan, like at the top of the Himalayas. And I have experienced the feeling of like seeing a person walking towards my group and being like, that kid just hiked, you know, 50 miles from home to go to school, you know, and like we're passing them. And like for them seeing a gaggle of white people, you know, in the middle of the Himalayas was like, it was like a party. They would stop and... "Ah!" (laughs) <laughs> you know, and just give us stuff and we would give them stuff. It's like, it was like a really amazing moment. And like, I had just come back from that trip when I joined journey. And so I had this deeply seated Buddhist inspired idea that like, I could simulate that experience of like meeting someone and then being really special, yeah. you know, which that's not something that you experience in life very often, which is sad. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's but, like sometimes star-crossed lovers across the dance floor, but like, you know, I mean, really when you think about it, how often do you see a person and just like, maybe at the birth of your child, you know, just like, look at this person. They're just, a, they're beautiful, you know, like just yeah. this really deep seated feeling of like,
1: this is it, you know? And plus you, the, there's going to be other people in the room at that moment anyway. Yeah. Right? It's, so it's, like,
0: it's, yeah. It's, it's like, maybe it's the first time you hold the baby. I don't know. Like th- there's yeah. this, like, there are, there are very few moments in life where you really truly feel that feeling. And we were like, if we could give people this feeling, what a gift would that be? Yeah. Um, so th- that was kind of where and things started to take I'd off.
1: I'd be curious because it's probably, for a lot of people, this might be their first time they ever played a multiplayer game.
0: Well, certainly an anonymous multiplayer game where you were sort of almost led to believe that the other person was an AI. Right. You know, like, I don't think anyone had ever had that experience on Planet Earth yeah. before Dream came out. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's, you know, that's certainly new. But I guess what I mean is there's a lot of people who just would never play a multiplayer game because True. there's just this this... Thing to get over, where it's like, why would I play multiplayer game? Either I don't want to lose to other people, yeah. or I don't want an unpredictable experience, or I know people who play multiplayer games. I'm not that. I'm person. not that person. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah.
0: And Genova is an expert at figuring out market niches that are underserved by the magic of video games. And like that was true. Is like it would be a casual online multiplayer game that was safe. Yeah. And that is. That's a different feeling than Dota. Yeah. It just is. Yeah. You know, and also just removing the lobby was like so, so nice. Like, you don't have <laughs> to fucking like click on a bunch of UI that you don't understand. Yeah. Like, even Fall Guys, I'm just like, what? I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know. have anxiety. Like, the minute that I get into an online multiplayer yeah. game in the lobby, it's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to choose. What if I do the wrong build? <laughs> <laughs> in maxing from day one. And yeah. like, we really wanted that initial experience to be a feeling well,
1: of awe. However, yeah. let's talk about so. An important thing to think about as a designer is, you know, you, made, you guys made a big choice to make this change yeah. from like what was like a Left 4 Dead style whatever type game, right, um, to this this two player game. But it's not even a two player game really. It's a it's a one solo, game. solo game. We gave where, Tracy what she wanted. Yeah, where you someone, yeah, Where someone. Yeah, the the extra person is just a bonus, right? Um, and be, and um, to make that choice though, you must have give, you give up stuff. Totally. So what did you guys give up? And why <laughs> how did this like how did this decision there were, there were so
0: many fails? Like so the first thing we did was we cut the levels down by like a massive amount. Like I think that the levels ended up being probably one fifth the size of what they were originally designed to be because we wanted the game to be engaging and the landscape needed to be very specifically gorgeous and navigable. Um we gave up on the idea of anything but a very linear path through the game. Right. So Essentially you you wake up, you start moving towards the mountain, and then you're always going in that direction. Right. And if we ever deviated from that kind of a design, it just made everything difficult. Um, so we created a wind system that blew you back from the edges of the level okay. so that you could look out, but you could never get to the far places. Cause when we first started playtesting the game, people would stand up, turn around, and walk off the edge of the map. Sure. <laughs> um, just like endlessly. And it was yeah. like we have to do something to force them back. Um we gave up on, um, we had a bunch of systems for communicating status that it was like, I think there was a real desire because of the media that influenced the game, including a lot of anime to build this kind of like, woo, like lone ninja warrior, like walking through the space. And the more we worked on the character design, the more I truly felt like if you gender the character, you're gonna drive away half the audience. It needs to be gender neutral. Yeah. And the more we worked on the design, the more we realized like to have a flowing cloth, which we wanted, dynamic cloth, uh, building a rigged character with arms and legs and a real head, like a humanoid character that was traditional was gonna not work and eventually we gave up altogether on modeling the character. Mm. So we created a mask and a and a hood and a cape. And then we put the mask and the hood on a stick with two legs and no arms and some shoulders. And then we put the cape on that. Right. So we gave up on arms.
1: It's, it's weird. Because There's no arms in the game. Yeah, you know. sure. Well, sure. It's, it's funny. Because it's weird. You're talking about all these things that changes you went through that however i think made the game more distinctive made your production process simpler easier uh i mean yeah i mean like i they were all
0: painful you know it was like there was a whole system in the game for like climbing ropes and
1: Doing all this I like see. Zelda okay. some sense style of I mean, like, gameplay, like why you, you know? want arms? Yeah, all the other games have arms. arms. Yeah, who cares? Yeah. If they want arms, they got plenty of options. But, well, anyway, but I no, the, I didn't know it, if it was necessary. It,
0: yeah, no. The, the, the problem was is that like a lot of the people on the team love Zelda, so sure. there was a lot of Zelda puzzles in the game. Like yeah. you have to stand here and I stand there, and like for the very long, a very long time, there was a sandstorm that just randomly came through the level and wiped you out. And you had to make this horrible decision about whether or not you were going to let someone come in the cave or not. And it was basically you were the other person. It was really brutal.
1: So that, that was still in the game for that a long time. That was
0: in time. the game for a long time. Like I would say at least a year. Um, there, I've given a bunch of talks about Journey that like are very, very informative. And so like to avoid repeating myself, I'll try not to repeat all those talks. But um, but there's one in the GEC vault that I gave at the year after it shipped in, uh, at GEC Europe that talks about the struggles that we had in design and One of the quotes there is John saying that um, John Edwards saying that the hardest thing about the game was having faith that it would actually not suck, essentially. That it was like believing in the unknown. So we made a game that was about what we were going through as a team, which was like when you lose the arms, you lose all the systems that come with arms including climbing it's like what do we do and like well okay well if you can't climb maybe you can just jump a little and so then we started making it that you could just jump and like okay well maybe you can just slide up the cloth like maybe you magnetize the cloth and like you make a tall pillar that comes from the ground like a piece of kelp, then you can slide up the cloth and then you can do a little jump to the next flag and you can hang that one from the ceiling and then you can get through a door. And so we started making all these very different locomotion systems Mm. because we had gotten rid of the arms and with it, all of these traditional obviously derivative and not very fun puzzles, just, they started to seem completely off goal. Right. And then it was my job to be like, do we really want to keep this puzzle where you have to push a switch Like a a gate opens up and then a bridge builds across these things. Um, What if it's not that you stand on the switch? What if it involves the mechanics of the cloth? What if you have to free a bunch of cloth to build the bridge? And then that is like you. the narrative is that like these little pieces of cloth are actually like little fish. And then they move together to make a bigger fish, which you can fly on, you know, yeah. like that's like in the game. Right. And like when we hit the point of like, okay, everything has to be thematically consistent in order to make any sense in a world where you don't have arms and you're basically like a chirping bird kite, yeah. you know, which is like for many, for many, to, you know, many months, you know, we had a model that just looked like a little chicken when it ran around the tail, just went. Oh, and it was right. awful. Um, we had more like origami style character that was cute but just didn't feel good to move because the world was super flowing. And then you had this like stiff guy. In the middle of the production, we made a fully articulated person with a mask, hands like a ninja, and a gown. And then there was this idea that you would get these little tags. Mm-hmm. From playing with other people, and they would be like their names, yeah. and they'd be all over you like a fur suit. By the end, you'd be this like wolf that had like all the tags. Yeah. And if I saw you, I would know you were a safe player, but if I saw someone that was very lean, I would know to stay away. <laughs> okay. You know, and like these kind of these like 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 I'm saying, like these kind of Western movie or like, you know, um like Akira Kurosawa kind of feelings about like ninjas and mercenaries and like there was a lot of that kind of thinking on the team. And it was really interesting because I was also drawn to that same kind of media and I'm a massive um, Japanophile and like have tons of um, comic books, anime and like I made them watch the snow sequence from Akira Kurosawa's dreams where the mountaineers are trying to get across the desert and this horrible, you know, demoness uh, tries to make the the lead guy go to sleep. Um, Because that that was how I had felt while trying to cross this 16,500 foot peak in the Himalayas. Like, oh my God, I can't take another step. And like, we had a lot of shared influences, but it was very hard at the beginning to get to, to really let go of arms because it meant letting go of Zelda puzzles, it meant letting go of yeah. grappling hooks and ropes and all of these things Man, that that's like, just, just so really, it's very endemic that, to your experience as a designer yeah, know, or a player.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that, you know, you guys, it, it's such a minimalist game. It's so weird to think of all the the junk that you guys had to jettison oh, along the way. It just
0: constant,
1: right? Like I don't even think of it as a game of puzzles. The only thing I could think of it as puzzle-like is like huddling behind the rocks when the the wind blows. Like right. that's the only thing I think that's even remotely a puzzle aspect. And it takes a lot of courage if you if you conceive of it if you conceive of a game without as a game if you conceive of it being a game with puzzles to decide okay we're just not going to have puzzles.
0: Yeah, and and then really the question became why are we constantly asking the player to sacrifice themselves? Why are we building a game that's punishing them on their journey? Why aren't we building a game that's just becoming harder and harder? And Genova's idea... Sorry to interrupt,
1: but how how are you even sacrificing... How does the sacrifice work if it's still like a single? Is it at that point was it a single no. player game with okay? So this was it was
0: a two player game and and it was you you could get killed like okay. you could get knocked out. So back. You went,
1: there is a middle stage. You went from four players to like a, really a two player game until you got to like a. Solo well, it was game.
0: two player online, but you could get wiped out and have to start the level over. Okay. So you could get pushed all the way back to being like if the sandstorm wipes you out, you have to start the level over. Okay. So we had failure states.
1: Right. It and wasn't. Huge, but there was some.
0: they. They well, they felt huge because yeah. at that time the game was so boring. Okay, it was so hard to walk <laughs> everywhere, and uh, we had the flying in, but the resources we were being very skimpy with how uh-huh. much cloth you could actually get in yeah. your scarf and stuff. So the other thing that we had to give up on that's related to the traveling, because um, the traveling had to be really engaging, and we were removing gameplay challenges. So it was like. What stops it from just being like walking in the park, you know, and like eventually you just look for something to to, to do because you're like bored. Um,
1: And and the sacrifice meant... Correct me if I'm wrong. But, you know, you come to this cave, and there's two of you. Yeah. One of you is going to go back to the end of level. Yeah. You sacrifice. That's basically what. It basically,
0: means, right? one of you is going to have to come out of the cave in order for the other one to go in, or you're going to have to try to push them out of the cave, and then the sandstorm is going to wipe you out. Okay. And it was basically like a giant wall of sand. It was just a roll. We right. just like took like a cylinder and we had it roll across.
1: So, like, was Jenova trying to give people a, the chance to to sacrifice something for someone else? That's what he wanted.
0: I, I think so. I think that that the, the there were many sort of if you don't do the right thing then the other person suffers kind of choices in the game but they weren't choices sure yeah. so they, yeah. they felt arbitrary and like we had a long discussion about this like it's not a choice if there's only one outcome You're, you know, you know if you either you survive or you die and, and the good choice is to sacrifice yourself and the bad choice is to sacrifice the other person in the end the only choice is sacrifice it's right. just whether it's you or them and that's kind of like brutal yeah. you know that's not going to build relationship between people that's going to drive people insane. And so it's like, we really started to have very, very dramatic and philosophical conversations as a team about what does it mean to live in scarcity versus abundance? And like all these conversations were informing my production style and like conversations about personal relationships in the team and the game itself. And at some point it was like, okay, we're really out. We're going to be out of time. Like, You know, I'm going to run out of money. This game is not going to get done. I have to go and, like, create an environment of abundance on the team. We have to go back and ask for an extension. So we went back and we asked for an extension. I think we got, like, eight months, you know, and then we did another one. Uh, And every time we did it, you know, it was, like, so painful because you were going to this huge publisher and you're this little tiny team and you're saying like i know you only budgeted 1.5 million dollars for our game but we really needed to cost 2.8 or whatever like we really we really you know 2.6 really need this extra eight months but now we have a plan and we're going to implement all these features and then like we would be playing we'd be like oh this feature is actually getting in the way like oh no it's like we've invested in another thing that we have to cut and it was just really hard because You know, you're trying to make something that's like better than Flower, like Flow and Flower had these like progressive stages of reviews, people were really looking forward to the new TGC game and we really wanted to demo at E3, we wanted it to be awesome and we were so afraid because we were like, if we don't, what if we demo it and then it gets killed, you know? And it was like, okay, we're going to focus 100% on this very basic demo of a person walking through the initial tutorial of how to walk on the sand, sing and call. Um, and Genova gave a presentation and we had a closed room with like 20 journalists in it. And I got into a car accident on the way to the demo. Someone sideswiped me, Aaron Robinson and I were in the car together and I was like, so worried that I was going to miss the demo, but we made it. And um, it was just like, everyone in the room was like, Oh my God, this game looks amazing.
2: Like right.
0: it was just a single, we didn't tell anybody it was multiplayer, nothing. It was like, we're making a new game about, journey to a mountain here it yep. is and it had the, the opening soundtrack and then walking through the sand and the, the, the gravestones and the wind and it was i mean looking at it now it looks like a shadow of what we ended up shipping which you know i just played journey uh two weeks ago with my friend's 14 year old daughter it was the first game she's ever played start to finish first oh. online experience she'd ever had and we were playing it and i turned to my friend and i was like you realize this game is 10 years old and she was like it is timeless and it really is. It's just gorgeous, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think back on that demo, and I'm like the sand was just like taupe. <laughs> you know? It was like it looked like paper, you know, yep. it like cardboard. Um, but it was enough. Like the feeling of the emotion of the music, the wind, and like walking in this almost empty environment was so lonely. And it, it really spoke to people. Yeah. And so that was like, Okay, we know we're doing something right. And like the other thing that happened was that the team was really in crisis about whether it was going to be good. And I, I asked Michael John to come to see the team mm-hmm. to tell them what I knew was true, Yeah, which was, we were building a romance of two people dancing on air together towards yeah. a place that they maybe wouldn't even reach together. Like right. any relationship you start and you have the best intentions and who knows if you're ever really going to make it to your old age together. It's just like, there's so many things that can happen along the way. And like I was really really going through it in my own marriage and I I could feel this like desire to communicate how precious it is to trust one another because it was not happening and I was trying to get pregnant and that was not happening and I had all of this like emotional connection issues in my private life and then the team was struggling with this uncertainty and like people were pointing fingers and like you're responsible for this and that it's not working and I, I just went to Michael John and I was like can you just come play the game yeah and then tell them what you feel. And he came and he played the game and he put the controller down and he was like it's gorgeous. Right. Like don't give up. And it worked. Yeah. Like we we went away on vacation, we came back, we got an extension and we started really pushing um and it was like then we were like okay, when something doesn't feel good, we have to be disciplined because we only have this time. And then the pressure was really about, like, how can we effectively communicate about the things that are not working in the game? And one of the things that was not working was the traversal. The sandstorm was, like, we finally cut it. Um, We started simplifying the cloth mechanics. And one of the things that that felt bad about the traversal was people were racing through the game. They were trying to beat each other because we had this mechanism in the game where... Um, we borrowed it from Disney the, the like a weenie, you know, like you, like the yeah, castle so we, is the weenie. Yep. So the mountain is the weenie. Um, you're trying to get there. And so we needed waypoints. And so I was like, what if we just sprinkle the, the fabric in the air, like little fish, it's flying and you can go capture it, you know? Um, or we can generate it by like, you know, creating more of it from uh, one that you, that you, you wake up with singing.
2: Yeah. And so we
0: started doing that kind of stuff. And Joe was like, yeah, it's just so wrong because people would get, playing and they'd start running and then one would get to a thing and they'd get the flags and their scarf would come along and then another person would go there and just be like well fuck you like <laughs> right. now your scarf is long and my scarf is short and it literally was a joke on the team like who's is bigger it became the problem solving the game and it was like what are we going to do what are we going to do what are we going to do We're, we've inadvertently once again yeah. created a two player competitive game where people are racing to the end and like I had had this experience on my hike in Bhutan um, where I went with a partner of mine And we were going over the mountain together, but they got up every morning and were out of their tent at exactly meal call. They were with the hiking instructor at the front of the line. They were like hiking so hard that they had, you know, serious like blisters and chafing and were always exhausted at the end of the day. And their friend's partner who was on the hike with us that we went Mm -hmm. as a foursome had never done a real hike. And she was just like always at the, but end of the line. Yeah. And so I was like, you know what? I don't want her to hang out there alone. I'm going to hang out at the back of the hike. Yeah. I brought my camera. I had an amazing camera and a solar charger, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. And I just took amazing photos. I hung out at the back of the line with the two sharpos that were the youngest and most junior. They were supposed to make sure that we didn't die. Yep. Uh, one of them was a big video game kid um, uh, who loved to play Tekken. And we just walked around, mostly in silence. But we were literally always the last people to camp, which had two really amazing effects on my trip. One, I spent a lot of time looking back, which you were so used to walking through the Himalayas and seeing all this beautiful stuff in Bhutan that, like, you would turn around and you'd be like, holy shit, like, I just walked over that entire fucking mountain. Like, I just did that. You know, you would forget because it was like up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. It was many, many little hikes and valleys to get over a big thing. And, like, you would go over a 7,000-foot peak and you would, like – have no experience of it if you were just looking forward. And the other thing was that I never felt pressure to perform, so I had an embodied experience of a lesson I was learning on on boom blocks. And I took great pictures and I really connected with this girl and the rest of the, the, the Sherpas and I enjoyed myself was never tired when I got to camp. <laughs> I was always in a great mood yeah. and the food was always ready. Yeah. Sure. It was like just the best way to go through. And my partner was so achievement oriented that I felt like he was racing to the end of the trip. Like, what's gonna happen to the end of the trip? Right. We're gonna we have to go to back to, to EA. EA.
1: We're, like, same, we're all being the same place. Yeah,
0: like what are we doing? You know? Yeah. And so like when we started having this effect on the game of like people were racing each other at the end, I just had this like intense need to, for that to not be the case. Like it was like, no, this is a bad outcome. And Genova was like, what if we made it like a wallet? where you can only hold 20 bucks. Like if you had a wallet that only had 20 bucks and you found money on the ground, you would give it to someone else because you wouldn't want it to get wasted and you get points for being nice. And so we made it so that in your game, when you get the flags, they disappear. Um, And then in their game, they don't. Right. Sure. And so it's like you get them and then the other person comes over and their scarf grows. And it was like the limiting the scarf, to grow a certain number per level meant that you were more likely to share things with people and making the cloth available to both of you. yeah. Like, so that, sorry, sorry. When, when someone else went to the, the flags, they disappeared for them, but not for you. So you would see them go over and get a longer scarf and you, you would, go to- you would go over there and you would get the flags. And yeah. it, it felt like essentially, they were helping you get resources, even yeah. though
1: for them, they were achieving. Like, it looked to that you, like they were showing you yeah. where this is. Like, exactly. hey, come over here, even exactly. though they were basically helping themselves. Exactly. Right. And
0: in the end, that perception of generosity
1: mm-hmm. and
0: limiting the, the amount of flags that would grow your scarf to, you know, you can only grow at three segments in a level, yeah. um, meant that people just immediately started being generous. And they perceived generosity in those first three or four interactions. Right. And it just completely transformed the way that they played together. And it was like, it took a really long time to not create jealousy and competition. Yeah. Well, the mechanics, by mistake.
1: you know, this is the flip side of Dota, right? The mechanics can create generosity. You just have to actually take the time to. It,
0: it, and you them have out. to ask yourself, why do people behave this way? So, like, fundamentally, you have to be doing the thing of, like, what makes us jealous? What does scarcity mean? And, like, I just kept having these, like, Really earth shattering epiphanies as I was working through the game and trying to solve the interpersonal problems on the team, the fundamental production problem of having committed to make a game that was too big and too small at the time with too few resources, and really trying to innovate, which is just like putting yourself on the knife's edge, especially when you're a team that was founded by people that had just graduated out of school. With no leadership training and no experience. And every single thing about their ego was riding on that success. Right. Like, I was the only person on the team when I arrived that had not only worked at TGC. Right. And that was, like, a huge difference. Like, I realize now how much of a difference it was. because, And I'd shipped something. Like yep. I, I mean, I'd already seen my game on the shelf at GameStop, you know. Yep. And I'd shipped a game that won a BAFTA. You know, and it's sequel and they were both great. So it was like, I was like, I just made three Nintendo games. I'm crushing it, you know? And so for me, I had the wherewithal to be able to be like, this will pass. It will be good. I can see it. Like, we're going to get there. Um, It was not easy to communicate. And I definitely had to call on a lot of outside outside resources to get them to sort of really hear it. Um, And that was hard. But yeah, we had to give up on on many things that we thought would be good and then finally we just gave up on the notion that you would always walk or fly we started to make it so that you can surf on the sand yeah and like that was matt like just saying like what if it was like ssx and i was like that's ridiculous <laughs> sure. this game is not an ssx and then like i saw the prototype and i was like you're a genius <laughs> i was wrong <laughs> like i'm yeah, so yeah. glad that now we're in the flow and like we can prototype and then yeah the last thing was just like how does it end and like what is the story we had a whole narrative about it at the beginning it was like a holocaust narrative and like a space needle narrative and all these things and it was kind of like fearsome engine if you've read that but like it was definitely derivative and it definitely was too much and there's no way to tell it and matt was trying so hard to like create these scenes cut scenes that would tell the story and eventually he came up with this innovation of like there would be panels that you would see unveiled on this huge scroll. And at the end of the game, him and Chris uh, came up with this idea that you would have the scroll unveiled all the way around you. And you would be like, uh, Oh, it's my journey. We would put one player where you were solo and another player where you were someone else. And you would see yourself getting ready to go to the mountain. Like this idea that it was going to be really hard. And that innovation and the sand surfing and the ending were the three things that came in last.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, It was sand surfing, then the sparkly stuff, like John's graphics rendering. He had like an epiphany one weekend while programming and made the sand look like fucking gorgeous. And um, the only other thing that was really sort of, I think, interesting about the production of Journey, which has come up lately because of Phenomenon, working on a new multiplayer game, um, that has, it is is an iteration on the stuff that we learned in in Journey that Martin and I have been working on you know, in our spare time for about five years, um, is that Martin had to build the seamless networking system uh, during the time that PlayStation Network was down because it had been hacked.
2: Oh, yeah, right. And
0: you couldn't play online in the online games that we were going to be making for PlayStation 3 unless you were whitelisted from an IP. And so we couldn't run, like, um, real play Tests, Yeah. yeah. And so he built a distributed online lobby system where you would bump into people based on how the proximity, and it was really good. He, he green or whitelisted areas in the game that people could appear mm-hmm. based on your proximity. So we had zones. Yeah. So you'd walk over a hill and there'd be a person there. And like, we would separate you long enough that when you found each other, if you did, it was like <sighs> yep. another person. Um, but then he built a system on the God of war team's machines that would run it at night off of a server. And he just ran it all the time and just like constantly collision testing the algorithm. We had one live play test beta that was an invite only. It was a thousand players and it was like a month before the game shipped and it had a stack like a buffer override overflow uh, error that crashed everybody the minute they logged on. And we were like, fuck, we're so fucked. Like this is really bad. And Martin fixed it and then we ran more simulated tests and then we launched it live totally cold and it was, it was flawless. <laughs> so, I mean, it could have been such a bad experience if we hadn't yeah. taken care, you know, uh, and so in addition to optimizing the sand so that it looked gorgeous and building the network and helping John with the cloth. Like I think just Martin spent so much time staring into space, <laughs> right. like trying to think of ways in which the game was broken and then how to optimize out those edge cases on the networking side. And he had kind of had two jobs. One was the graphics optimization and like making the sand really work. And the other was the networking and he would go back and forth. And some days he'd come into the office, look at his computer, read the output of the bug reports from the night before and be like, I'm going for a walk (laughs) and he would disappear for like hours and then come back and be like, okay, I think I, I think I've worked it through, but he would walk and think a lot. And then that was the other outcome of the project was just that he was exceptional as a partner. He was so good. Like the game would not have shipped if I hadn't been able to go out and drink copious amounts of scotch with him at, um, at the pub around the corner from us and um when the game shipped we went to this pub and we each bought like scotch uh from a year of our birth <laughs> it was really expensive scotch yeah, and um mine was more expensive than his because i'm much older than him. uh and we just sat there and like we're just like that was like a fucking miracle like i can't believe that we actually finished this thing um yeah. And, you know, the, to, to sort of emphasize why that was a miracle is that the day that I interviewed everybody there, he was ready to quit. Wow. He was going to leave. He had been there for three years. It had not been a great experience for him. He wanted to move on and do something more meaningful with his life and just make video games. And I was like, could you just stick around for a year?
2: Yeah.
0: Like maybe just six months. Wow. I promise it won't suck. And then he became literally like my best friend in the whole world. So, yeah. Yeah. So it was like. All the other things that happen on the, you know, on the team side and development, money, you know, stress about failing, worrying about the reviews. Like, I mean, we had a playtest that we organized right before E3, the year that we announced it and were on stage and like had the whole booth the year that Miyamoto came and saw the game um, and said it was beautiful. Um, We had this playtest organized a few weeks before by Sony PR in San Francisco, we all flew up there. All these fancy ass journalists from all the major major outlets came and we sat them down in individual cubes to play and they were gonna play with each other and no one had whitelisted the IP and we couldn't run it networked. Oof. So they could only play the intro. Yeah. Which meant that they had to believe that it was multiplayer without actually seeing Seen it or it. experiencing yeah. it. And we were like, just come play it at, yeah. at the show. And I don't think I've ever seen a person more angry than Genova was in the 20 minutes before that play test. Right. Like his face was the color of that wall. Like, he was, <laughs> he was livid. And he was like, I'll hack it. Like we have to come I'll up with, it. It. I was like, no, we can't. Yeah. Like this is literally not a problem that we can solve. And he was just like melting inside. Yeah. He was so angry. And I felt really terrible for the team. It was like we had worked so hard to build this beautiful experience and we couldn't share it with people yeah. and it was like it just made us look like such jokers you know and yeah. it was just one of those things like everybody was busy it was yeah. it was everyone was had e3 deadlines you know yeah. the producers were all so apologetic um and you know the press ended up coming out and being like i can't wait to see the multiplayer yeah, yeah. and right. it ended up being the best thing that we could have possibly done because it wet everybody's appetite yeah but nobody knew what it felt well, like it to exactly it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, was kind okay. of a miracle.
1: Yeah. Cool. Well, let's talk. So the game, the game came out. Let's talk about like the reception a little bit, like, mm-hmm. uh, like what happened?
0: So the day that game came out, we had run out of money. We started running out of money about a month before the game shipped. So I laid everybody off at the ship party, which was really painful.
1: Um, that sounds really painful. It was awful. Yeah. Um,
0: I made sure that everyone had enough severance that they could go to DEC and interview for jobs. I put everybody, in a path to success, I felt as as best as I could. Most people found jobs right away because industry people that we knew had seen the game right. and knew it was cool. And then, was there? We went to E three with it. Right. Uh, or sorry, when did we we went to E three with it. Then we shipped it. Um, the accolades trailer that we released for it. Um, um, Chris uh, he goes by Tyco had uh-huh. made this music for it uh, well he made music we used the song for it um, and it was all like you know 10 out of 10 just yeah. huge numbers game of the year all this stuff and I was like you know it's so nice to be an in any game that gets nominated for game awards because Flower had gotten nominated for a few but one only a few you right and um, Martin and I decided that we were going to leave the company so we left and Kelly left she went to Uya. Martin went off to Vietnam for a vacation and then went hiking with Richard Lamartian in the Swiss Alps. Wow. And uh, I took a job working at Tiny Speck mm. that you may know of because they make a thing called Slack, which we are all now trapped in all the time. <laughs> um, and uh, they were making a game at the time. And I agreed to go and work there because Keita Takashi asked me to go up there and, and make it good. <laughs> yeah. So um, long story short, that game got canceled and Slack got made, uh, yeah. which is... It was just a huge thing for the world uh, and for all the people that worked on it um, and a huge accomplishment and also just like mind-bendingly influential. Um, But I was not interested in making communication software or productivity software or anti-productivity software (laughs) as as Slack may be perceived by the people that get get the value of its actual name. But, um, But it was an interesting experience and I was not happy there. And I was like, well, I just... I was going through a divorce and I was like, I had shipped the game and I was kind of miserable and it was the summer. So awards shows were going to start happening in the fall and then in the spring. So it was like, we were getting ready. Maybe it was the fall and we were getting ready to roll up to Dice that year. That's yeah. what it was. So it was, Dice was going to be in the new year. And so it was around September and Martin got back from his trip and he was like, I'm going to come visit you in Vancouver. And he came to visit me and I was like, I'm fucking miserable and I'm pretty sure I'm getting divorced and I have no idea what I'm gonna do with my life and I don't really wanna go back to EA and I don't really wanna go work on another huge game team. Like I wanna work on a team that can be deliberately developmental, that can, that can make something beautiful but also where people feel safe and I can't stop thinking about all the things I would do differently now if I, if I had you know journey to do over again but maybe I needed to make Journey in order to know what I need to do next. And he was like, why don't we start a thing? <laughs> I was
1: like, By the way, sorry, like, I yeah. definitely want to get to this. But, yeah. um, I mean, Journey, in terms of like what you could hope for with the game, right? Journey is like 99th percentile. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't even know
0: that at this time. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, like, so essentially the reason that this is in the story here is because that's when it happened. Like Martin came to see me and we had no idea. Like we we weren't getting the sales results. We, you know, we were no longer at the company. Um, and what happened was I quit my job and I went back to San Francisco because I was living in Vancouver at the time and my husband and I split up. And he agreed to pay my rent for a year and my and take care of my health care, and I just took a year off with Martin. And okay. so at the beginning of the first year that we were incorporated, uh, dice happened, and I was on a chat with a bunch of people on a list, uh-huh. and they were like, "Are you going to go to Dice?" And I was like, nah, I don't think so. I never go to that show. Like, it's for beady people, and I'm a designer, right? Yeah. You know, producer. And why would I go? You should really go, you know." And I was like, nah, I gotta go." <laughs> And they're like, you should really go. And I was like, I I was like, uh, and so I said to Martin, Hey, if we're going to do this company thing, I'm probably going to have to be the fundraiser because it's not going to be you. Yeah. So why don't we put on our fake suits and go to dice and see what it's like. And then we'll go to the award show and we'll politely stand up and clap for the The people that win. And he was like, okay. And then I was like, Hey, Genova, are you going to go to dice? And he was like, no. And I was like, you should go. And he's like, why? I was like, because everyone's saying we should go. It's like, we should celebrate the game. You know, like, I had no idea. And then we were sitting there. And then, like, literally every time we stood up, it was to accept the award. And then they would get backstage and they'd be like, go back to your seat. (laughs) (laughs) You need to be fast. It was insane. And, like, it was like we were, like, multiplayer game of the year. It was like we beat Medal of Honor. You know, it was like it made no sense to me. And I just remember standing up there being like, this is nuts. Like, this is nuts. I now know that the way that award shows work is if your publisher is a giant company, then technically everyone in the company can vote. (laughs) (laughs) And if we had been a totally indie game, we probably wouldn't have had the experience that we did. So you can't take
1: take credit for it, you know. But – they could have pushed all sorts of games. They
0: could have right. pushed all sorts of games, and they chose ours, and so we were really, really, really floored, and I will never forget it. We had like packed enough clothes to go to Dice for two days, and then we were going to go to the Grand Canyon and stay there and do an offsite. This is our idea. We're going to think of what we're going to do, and we like left Dice, and we were driving to the Grand Canyon. There was a huge storm coming. we were trying to beat the snowstorm, and we were dro- and I was just like. I don't understand what just happened. Like, I was like, if that happened at DICE, it's gonna happen at GEC, and it's gonna happen right. at Baptist, it's gonna sure. happen everywhere. Because they, you know, yeah. they're always the same. And he was like, yeah, he's like, I think it really is. And I was like, that is nuts. Like, the game is gonna sell crazy numbers. Like, it cost $3.5 million to make. Like, think about all the money Jerry must have made. You know? yeah. And the sales were gonna be huge, and it was gonna transform the way people saw games. It was like wolf, everyone kept coming up to me all three days. I can't believe how beautiful it is. Oh my god, it's so gorgeous. You must be so proud. And all I could think of was like, I lost my team.
1: <laughs> like, I lost my you team. Know,
0: like, you know, like, uh
1: like Yeah, the, you know, the what contrast are, between what, what gonna do,
0: you know, internally
1: versus yeah. what's going on externally is just crazy. And
0: we couldn't talk about it because the last thing we wanted was for the press to get eclipsed by Huge indie game does amazing. Team explodes. Like yeah. we did not want that to be the headline, and we all we buckled down. The whole team did, and we shared all the accolades. We created a journey mailing list, like, and we just we celebrated the game, and we didn't talk about the failure.
1: Yeah, and there's so. I mean, I don't, I don't even know. This, this isn't a question, <laughs> but like the fact that there's no path for your team to continue when making one of the standout games of that decade is crazy. It's a fail. I mean, things are, things would probably not be like that now to some extent, but because stuff can just go faster, but like, yeah, I think it was, it was
0: hard because we had an exclusive three game contract. And when we signed the last extension, there were contract stipulations that we needed to accept, uh, or, we wouldn't sign the contract and so we didn't we spent the little money that we had left making it we drove the company yeah. into the ground on purpose right. because the only deal that we were able to get at that time was not one that we wanted to do would have tied us down for in a whole other game yeah and so Gen- it was, like a- was very passionate that the next game be something that would, would reach more people because it was not tied to the console
2: yeah right
0: so it wasn't a choice. We were meeting with people. We were trying. I was pitching the game. I did concept art for the game. I like I tried so hard to get like I mean, we talked to so many people. Um, but we were not a coherent team and we did not really have a shared vision and it was clear that we didn't know what we were doing. And I, I don't blame them for not investing in us. Like it wasn't clear what we were gonna do, was gonna be successful. Yeah. I mean, when did sky ship? Like two years, a year ago. Yeah, sure. You know, like I've shipped tens of games nice. <laughs> in that time frame, and like it, it, like I do think that when you look at the trend, it's exponential. You know, it's yeah. like Will has talked about this. Like, sure. It's just like you get more and more ambitious, and your game takes longer and longer to make. Yeah. And like literally, Martin was like, "Do you want to spend the next five to seven years of your life making the next game?" And I was like, "I don't know that I yeah. do." Like that wasn't a choice I could I could make personally for myself. And it took a lot of faith in Genova for his investors to push with him all the way through Skies, which is a success. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important to sort of look at that and wonder wonder what it would have been like if we could have found that without all the struggle that he had to go through to finally get his yeah. new game and his new team built. Um, but we didn't, we didn't have the capacity to wait around. We all needed jobs. Like I was not rich, Yeah. you know, and neither was Matt and neither was Martin. And we just, we, we all needed to move on. So there were three people left, John, Jitnova, Nick stayed, and then yeah. eventually it was just Jitnova. Sure. Sure. And, like, he's passionate and he's making his things and and more power to him for doing yeah. that. But, like, yeah, so I did, don't know.
1: But did this uh, – so did the success at least per- change your own perception of what you should feel comfortable taking on now? You know.
0: You like- know, it was so funny because I felt like – I felt like I had failed to really create true cohesion – until the very last part of the game and even then it was still really tough to get everybody to be nice to each other um I felt like I mean I knew I didn't ever want to make a game without Martin so that I definitely learned that I actually said to him when we were staring at the Grand Canyon the next day it was covered with snow and the clouds were clearing and you could just start to see it emerging and I was like Let's not do the thing where we make the game again. Like, let's not make a sequel. Right. Like, I don't want to do another PlayStation title that's about moving through, you know, multiple yeah. Like, let's, let's, I know we have a lot of ideas that we wanted to do in this game that I still want to do, but let's not do it right now. What if we focus 100% on building a sustainable organization that just feeds us and like helps us recover from this intense period of time right. that we just spent trying to figure out this really hard problem? And he was like, okay. And I mean, worst case to, scenario, we'll go out of business, right? Yeah,
1: you wanted to iterate on the organization, not on the game. Yeah.
0: I did not have the capacity at that time to manage another uncertainty process yeah. forward. And I'm really glad that I took that time off because, you know, we ended up making Luna and that's like still selling today. Uh, we, we we worked with Kata on Wattam and we shipped that. And after about – after so that took about five years. And so after that five-year period, I understood – Okay, I've built a successful organization now. We know what works for us and what doesn't work for us and what kinds of people and teams work inside the company and what ones don't. And we have a really awesome HR policy now and our hiring process is amazing. We're 70 60% non-cis white male. We're living in San Francisco. We're we're partnering with these people that are like saying they're going to buy us, you know, and like Everything is moving towards like, we're gonna take an investment and build our next game. And then the pandemic hit. And so I learned that like, even with all of the things that you want to do done, there's always randomness, you know? And I had a lot of, as a leader, a lot of opportunities to learn that I'm still trying to let go of performing authority. I'm still trying to like not be right about everything all the time. And like going from executive producer to CEO really reintroduced a lot of the trauma of that early job as a designer. And I had the, just the very awesome luck of getting enough support from peers that were also in the same position that when I really truly felt my imposter syndrome creeping up, I could go to people that were more senior than me who were also running their own companies and say like, how, how do I not fuck this up? or what do I do to fix this? Cause I fucked it up. Yeah. This is usually more often the case. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was really excited about building the organization and I'm glad that I did it because I never wanted to feel second album pressure. Sure. I, I just didn't want, I didn't want to engage in the fantasy that everything I was going to do after that would be journey. And I have always said to everyone that comes to work at phenomena, if you love journey, that's great, but that's not what we're making here. And like, I don't know that we could ever make something that great again. Like, it was a very unique moment for online multiplayer games. It was a unique moment for the PlayStation. It was a unique moment for um, downloadable games, you know? And we had a very talented and unique team. Yeah. I guess one thing people ask me is why, why didn't I just go ask for money to build the company right off the bat?
2: Right. On the okay. success
0: of journey, sure. why didn't I fundraise? And the answer is I was exhausted and going through a divorce and I was messed up. Yeah. Like I was grieving.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then people have asked me, do I wish I had done it differently? And the answer is most definitely no, mm-hmm. uh, because I needed to learn the things I learned. And like, I truly do believe that everyone has a path and that like, Things happen for a reason, not a reason that is anything anyone could possibly divine, but they happen for reasons of all the systems around you that collide to make things happen. And like, I am going through the thing I need to go through. And, you know, during the pandemic, we had a, a, a really awesome partnership fall apart uh, just to COVID pressure and you yeah. know, financial problems. And so I did uh, a friends and family round. And started to finally work on the new game and was like, okay, now it's time. Like, and for me, the pandemic was like you did the thing you wanted to do. Like it was our best year in many ways because we cohered as a team under uncertainty through some of the worst experiences you can have right. as a team, as a country, you know, um, and you know, as a business, you know, we've been through several me too waves where we've had people on the team that are just traumatized by, yeah. by prior experiences of of abuse we've had you know the the George Floyd murder we had you know all of these things that we were dealing with as an organization happening so quickly but we were unified in that we were going to really try to thrive um, and that we would be willing to do some pretty you know pretty big acts of service for ourselves and each other in order to survive that and i i love them i yeah. really do so you know i That's think right. it's 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 been a very weird couple of years because we completed a couple of games that are still unreleased for bizarre contract reasons we like we like got some really great headcount and then we lost some really great headcount for like very understandable personal reasons that are not even at all like it's like not even a question like you know go forth and be, be right. prosperous you know um uh, we've maintained relationships across distance. We've like, we've built this amazing new prototype. Like, we have really great investors that hopefully by the time this podcast will be announced will be, you know, public or will be dead. Um, which is the other the <laughs> other the other thing is always possible is that like we really confronted our own destiny as a group and we're like, you know, with this huge write down, and you know, losing basically all of our savings that we had earned and saved over seven years suddenly having that all go away so that we could stay alive. You know
1: because you had to the,
0: we had we had to process a like a, a write down, essentially. Someone right. did someone didn't pay us.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah, it happens. Yeah. It doesn't happen to me usually, so it was my first experience, but it did happen. And it wasn't personal, it was just systemic. And I think just being like once again, like it was it brought back a lot of the feelings I had when Journey shipped and I was just like if I could have just done something different, it would be different. It's like, it needed to be the way that it was so I could be here. Yeah. So, I think building a company that's truly diverse and developmentally focused, like a DDO, there's a paper on it, you know.
1: Well, what I mean, if you can identify one thing that you feel like has gone right, phenomena it's been
0: that it's it's been really owning the idea that we're growing and learning as leaders like martin and i support each other 100 in admitting when we're wrong and like dealing with our failures even when they're really gross and costly um and like you know we're honest about what we don't know and like as soon as we have any kind of uncertainty that we can talk about with the team we talk about it with the team and we broadcast that like you know like literally our goal is For everyone that works with us to feel supported, seen, like they're being paid a living wage, living somewhere where they feel safe. Um, And so we're fully online now. um, And, you know, we've been doing a lot of work in Roblox. And Mm -hmm. we're doing a lot of work with fashion and music people. The Roblox
1: thing sounds really fascinating because it's not a lot of people with your pedigree are not not looking at that at no. all, as a, a path
0: i think that like what i've been thinking about over the last like basically since 2017 i read the uninhabitable earth and i was just so gutted by it and like just confronting the reality of what's happening and like the speed with which it's going to happen and you know just really absorbing that we that we didn't do it we didn't make a change and so now we have to change and it's not going to be pleasant And that the very first thing that you think about is like, well, what about the fires and the storms? But the reality is, is actually that disease is one of the big risks because people migrate massively. And now that we've had the pandemic, it's like practice for the future. You know, I really, truly believe that we have, as as humanity, we have a lot of challenges ahead. And as I've tackled each organizational problem that I've been interested in, first making a game, then... Looking at why organizations work and then looking at why innovation is so hard, and now looking at, like, how is it, how, why is it so hard for us in our systems to build diverse organizations? Is really what I wanted to solve. Like, walking around accepting all those awards for Journey, I would look out in the audience, it would be the same face over and over and over and over. I found a phenomena nine years ago. Nobody was talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti racism at this time, especially not in our industry. Nobody was acknowledging the massive amount of gender bias, discrimination, harassment, and hate that women in our industry were experiencing, that queer folks and trans folks in our industry and all over the world were experiencing. Literally, no one gave a shit. And I was like, this is a problem that I care about. Journey was amazing. Rather than focusing on getting more of that honey, I'm going to try to figure out how to give what I have back so that more people can do something like that. Yeah. Like, the next 40 years of my life, I will dedicate to that. And I did. Like, I founded a games program at UC Santa Cruz, which rapidly became the fastest growing major on campus and is the largest, second largest enrollment in my division. And now I have a new department that I just founded with my excellent colleagues in theater arts called Mm -hmm. Performance Play and Design. And, like, I have hired people out of that program to come and work with us and make cool things they never would have had the opportunity to do what they've done with me they're not like the world's most famous popular games i mean most of those are already being made and have been being made for the last 10 years Mm -hmm. they're all franchises and they're all shooters and they're great but they're not what we make and we focused on blue ocean development and working with people with the need for games and small markets because we felt like we could become a boutique you know co-development partner And we could grow steadily and slowly and save money until we could make our own gain. And if it weren't for the pandemic, we would have. (laughs) (laughs) And I think like, you know, it really worked. It fucking worked. It was not easy. I had many sleepless nights. I've had a lot of anxiety about lots of mistakes, both my own and other people's, which always feel like 10 times worse when you're the last person in on the, you know, you're the caboose, like all the bucks stop with you, you know, which I am and Martin is, um, but I would, I would not give it up for the world. And I think when I read The Uninhabitable Earth and I thought about like, what am I doing? I was like, we need to build ways to be online together, whether that's in virtual reality, mixed reality, like a metaverse, whatever you want to call it. We need to be able to connect with each other globally as a community and as a system to avoid the worst impacts of what we have already done. And if we don't build environments that make people feel trust and safety, like my organization in our online play communities, then we will not succeed. Like We are going to be like the children who play Roblox now, accustomed to online play, learning, and communication at a, at a speed and a level of diversity and breadth that is unparalleled And in 20 years, people are gonna look back and be like, remember that first one, Mm -hmm. you know? Remember that first one and then the second one and then the third one, like it was like Minecraft and then there was Roblox and then there was whatever's coming next. And like when I started playing Roblox in 2019, like I basically, I got invited to speak at the keynote about MDA, Uh which is like kind of (laughs) full circle. And I went and I gave a presentation, just a short 10 minute presentation on like, you can design a game from rules you get the behavior and from the behavior, you get the aesthetic outcome. You're all designing games that you've already seen, which is so cool. Like if I had had Roblox when I was your age, I would have been a game designer from the age of 12. Like I know this now, but it is diverse. It is inclusive. There are kids from all different kinds of places and age ranges. You don't just have to be a programmer. You can be a creator. You can build spaces that are narrative. There's, there's bandwidth uh, to, to be social and play together, and now they're incorporating even more tools there. And like I see this as the roadmap to the future. And like I came back from the conference and I said to Martin, like this is it. This is the thing I was looking for in 2017 when I was freaking out about why am I still making video games? Like the 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 the, the line between gaming, socializing, making friends, learning, and work is going to be obliterated. Yeah, sure. yeah. You know, and like thinking about it is computer time is gonna be obliterated. Yeah. Um, it already, it already has. The pandemic has done it. And we know now, like everyone knows how exhausted we are from using tools that don't really serve our needs. Right. And so my pitch in 2019 was invest in me. I'm gonna make safe social online games that really that build new tools for connection. And it made no sense to anyone. And I got a lot of that's nice, call me when you're in your Series B. And now it's really different, yeah. you know, it's just really different environment. And like, you can't be grateful for a pandemic that kills all these people and like divides all these countries apart and like has all these horrible, horrible outcomes. You can't be grateful for, you know, a culture that is so A or B still that it is trapped in these dialogues that don't make sense and just go around and around in a circle, you know, in many ways, like it feels like we're in the rowboat and we're all rowing at the same time and we're going around in circles. Like, but I know that's not true because when you look at youth, when you look at the students at my school, when you look at the kids I'm engaging with at Roblox, like we're working on education inside yeah. of Roblox with well, Project the way, you know, you like can be, you can see it. It's going to You be grateful
1: change. that humans adapt.
0: Yeah, we adapt. That's,
1: that's always been true.
0: Exactly. So. And I think now being deliberately developmental is like, it's part of the millennial conversation. It's part of the Gen Z conversation. Like screen time limits, boundaries, understanding your identity, having choice, um, what you own, not being a, a content creator for something that you don't believe in. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these kind of conversations that we were having at Phenomena seven years ago are now happening in the popular culture, in the youth culture, and I think that's really fantastic. So, you know, I think one of the things that I realize about myself. Is that I like to solve systems so I'm a systems thinker and I'm an artist uh, and I'm an empath you know and like those three things come together in many ways like I love to garden and do watercolors and I have a really awesome relationship with my small dog and my partner and you know my family and it's not like what most people would live like my life is very unique and I'm online a lot of the time but I'm like a proto version of a kid that's coming up in Roblox now during the pandemic and going to school online like especially if they're not neurotypical which increasingly we're understanding is a super huge spectrum part,
1: yeah part of the world yeah. you know
0: it's like really what is typical you know the idea of a or b is starting to evaporate and like Yeah, I feel like it's
1: well. it's the the end point of this journey is that You know, there is no such thing as a normal brain. No. You know, and like...
0: And your circumstances shape the way your brain grows. Fundamentally, trauma creates brain patterns that actually institutionalize that trauma. And we have to learn how to deal with this if we're going to talk about people, entire cultures losing their entire home. You know, like it's not just war-torn Lebanon. It's not just, you know, the issue of slavery in the United States, you know... It's not just the 1619 Project. It's like literally everywhere on the planet. We're going to be having these disasters and needing to adapt and having to adjust. And we're going to have to process trauma at a much rapid, much more rapid rate that's also more caring and holistic. Because otherwise we'll fall apart. And we know this. Like deep down everybody knows this. Like it is, it's, in our, it's in our DNA to do it. And so like I'm just really excited about the things that I can do to contribute to that project um, to the extent that I can. You know, um, and I always say like, you know, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow and just make sure my nephew gets all my jewelry, like that's it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you just, you know, every day is an opportunity to make a difference. I'm like, the older I get, the less I'm like, Oh, what if I had been born a man, you know, or like, yeah. what if there wasn't systemic racism or like, what if, what if the more I'm like, what can we do today? Yeah. Like, how can we solve this today? Like, what is the concrete action that I can take? to live my truth and provide an opportunity for other people to do the same. If I'm not doing that, then I'm probably not trying hard enough. And like, I don't really think that being a famous game designer is all it's cracked up to be. Like, I don't consider myself a famous game designer. I was honored to be invited to the podcast. I, I really have no interest in like, promoting myself as canon. Like, I think that's actually kind of garbage. But like, I do think that if I can say one thing, it's that like, it does get better and it can get better. Sure. Like you can, you can actually, you can change things because humans are designers. Like we designed traffic, we designed clothes, we designed food. <laughs> we have designed so much of the things around us. Every single thing in the room that you're sitting in right now was designed by a person. It didn't just spontaneously appear out of nowhere. And that means that every single thing that you are aware of and experience can be changed. Yeah. There's no such thing as an, in, it's an infinitely living Infinitely standing infinitely true anything except that nothing is infinite or true forever, right? Yeah, that's it
1: okay, well um, we're Transition to what's usually might the last question I always have yeah. for these podcasts, which is um, And even sort of dancing around this but like what is you know What's the reason you dedicated your personal your professional life to working on video games? Uh,
0: you know because programming a computer And seeing it change based on what I decided it should do felt both like painting and writing and telling a story at the same time. And I was just really, I was overwhelmed at the idea of being able to simulate something before it was real and get a sense of how it would be so that you could make it better mm-hmm. like
1: that you could be iterative
0: that you could be iterative that you could try things in a safe environment and like i mean if i'm really honest about that it's because my dad is an engineer and my mom was a teacher and the lesson that I learned very early on was you should measure twice and cut once Mm
2: -hmm. and
0: like, you should be squared away and you should make sure that everything is in its place because that makes the world more manageable. And if you do it right the first time, you don't have to experience the pain of failure. And then I failed constantly and didn't fit in at all. And I was like, well, I'm trying the hardest I can and it's not working. And I learned that I have to just accept that I'm doing the best that I can and that everyone is doing the best that they can. And like, I wanted an environment where the best that I could do was inspiring to me. Right. As opposed to just like passes, you know, like passes the bar or is satisfying, you know, like I wanted to really be able to be creative. And like, that was what it felt like when I started programming and thinking about video games is that like, this is a place where i can make an impact and it has the capacity to be iterative in a way that i mean literally almost no other medium does even paintings like at some point oil hardens like it's just very hard to be flexible right um simulation is is the ultimate flexibility
1: right i mean making a game inherently involves failure there's no way because you start with failure yeah you know and you had new failures but like
0: well i mean if you make a copy of a game that is successful that's not true but you know but making a new game is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know and i think that was why i just was like i could continue working on the sims forever and i had friends that have i don't want to do that like i want to be a pioneer like when i was a kid i would lay in my parents bed my dad had a planner's peanut tin filled with coins from all over the world because he had sailed all over the world in the merchant ring and i remember spreading them all out all over the place and just being like i want to go see all these places and then growing up and realizing half those places wouldn't even exist anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they're already gone. Yeah. And like, well, fuck. And then I realized I get seasick when I sail. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, I always had the explorer's drive. I always wanted to try new things. Like my brain is voracious. I'm an omnivore and I'm a, you know, a polymath. And so it was just like all the ingredients and forgiving in the sense that like, there's always something that no one has done. Yeah. You know, and so there's always a new place to go. Um, I mean, I guess maybe it's Star Trek. We can blame Star Trek yeah, yeah. <laughs> to boldly go where no woman has gone before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I, I I do think of myself as an explorer. And when I submit the call for experimental gameplay workshop, which hopefully will you'll be seeing the 20th anniversary show at GDC this year in person, um, I say hello, game design explorers. Like, yeah. show us your failures. Show us what you're doing yeah. differently. I mean. You know?
1: it, it may get harder. I have no idea, but you know, you and I were both lucky to be born at a time when, yeah. like, if if, if you want to make video games, you're an explorer. Period. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, just The end of it.
0: Yeah, I was listening to a to a podcast recently where someone was talking about like, it's just, it's essentially it's the mixtape podcast that Radio Lab has been doing, and it's so excellent. And um, the the speaker is a programmer who was like one of the early bedroom coders that ended up like using tapes to communicate code on the radio. And because you could record it and then run it on your computer. And that was essentially the first mass network of computer programs, you know, was distributed through this mixtape on an audio program. It was a meme, you know, it was yeah. like a virus. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, you know, the, the interviewer was like, did, you, d- did that strike you as weird? And he was like, it didn't matter because if you had a computer, you were weird.
2: Sure. <laughs> like yeah.
0: you were just by default, you were like, Bonkers, like people yeah. thought you were a nutter and like that's just the way that it was like So you didn't have to worry about it. It was like oh everyone in this club is already crazy So let's just do crazy stuff yeah. and like I definitely had felt that way about video games the industry as systemically oppressive as it was the little community of MIT nerds and like looking glass people and ironstorm people that I met in the early time and then like you know Richard Garfield and you know all these people that I ended up interacting with you know like I am Ken Perlin, you know, like those (laughs) moments were so influential to me, you know, and like, it is worth pointing out that I never really had a female mentor, you know, like I've had collaborators that were women, but I never really, I never really had someone who was a senior woman that I could look up to. And so the other thing I've really tried to do in the last 10 years has been to just make myself available to the right kind of people. Like I'm not for everybody. I'm a lot You know, I'm a strong (laughs) cup of tea, as my as my dad sometimes says. Um, not for everyone. But um but for the people that I work for, you know, in that sense as a as a mentor, I do really try. And you're all amazing. (laughs) You're all making great games and you're gonna be amazing and successful and I love you. Cool. So yeah. Thank you for taking the time to interview me. I appreciate it. Yeah,
1: I thanks for being on. I think this is uh, this is really great. Right. Cool.